Okay, so Maple Grove, are you ready to dive into some God-breathed living and active, sharper than a doubled-edged sword words from the creator of the universe this morning? You guys ready? You guys ready? Awesome. Me too. It's July 10th, uh, 2016, and today we're continuing in our series, our summer series, Heroes, uh, Amazing Stories of Faith. And, and so far, we, we met a, a, a dad named Noah uh, who saved his family. Uh, we met a, a, a guy named Moses who, like us, was called to be a deliverer. Um, we met a guy named Daniel, a guy who remained faithful for 70 plus years, even though he lived in a very pagan culture, and he had a faith that impacted two empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and he had, had a faith that actually shut the mouth of lions. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at the story of Ruth, uh, which is a story of redemption. But before we look at the book of Ruth, I, I want us to look at what is probably the, uh, uh, one of the most popular, one of the most well-known uh, what is probably the all-time go-to passage when somebody's going through a hard time. It was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul, and it's found in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes these words. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And we know that God causes all things, causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for that. Now that verse is not saying that everything is good. Because the truth is that many times the everythings in our lives are not so good. Uh, the road gets steep. Uh, the winds blow. Times get hard. The, the waves crash and the floodwaters rise in our lives. But the good news is we know that the sovereign king of the universe is working, is alive and well, is on the move, causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and those who are holding on to, embracing God's plan and purpose for their lives. What a promise. What a God. Amen? Amen. Now let's, let's dig into the book of Ruth and the um, the way I want to do it is first I, I want to tell, tell the story that's in the book of Ruth, and then we're going to pull out several uh, takeaways from the story. Okay, let's do this. The book of Ruth opens up with these words, these seven words. In the days when the judges ruled. And, and now those seven words uh, say a lot about the environment that this story of redemption takes place in. Uh, understand the period of judges began after God's people had entered the promised land, conquered the promised land, settled in the promised land, and after their great leader Joshua died. It was a period of about 330 years, a period that was dominated by violence, sexual morality, greed, pride, fear, sin, evil, and idolatry. It was a time when God's people were stuck in a vicious cycle. Ever been stuck in a cycle? Here's was their cycle right here. You know, Israel serves the Lord. You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Forever God reigns. God, you're awesome and amazing. But they kind of forgot about God, right? Because things were good, right? And they fall into sin and idolatry. And then God removes his protection from them. Um, foreign enemies come in and, and, and basically invade the land and put them into captivity. And they do what we do when things get hard, right? Hey, God, help me out. Help me out here, God. God, could you help? And God raises up judges. And these judges come in, and they free God's people, and God's people are singing once again, praise God from whom all blessings flow, and then they forget God, and the cycle goes on and on several times. You see, time and time and time again, Israel falls down and worships other gods. They consistently and constantly fall into idolatry, putting things ahead of God in their lives. A, a, a guy named Os Guinness wrote a book called No God But God breaking up with the idols of our age, he writes this, idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant. In other words, we, we, we don't think it's that big of a deal, right? I mean, we don't worship some statue, cross our legs in our backyard and sell our belly button and go, mm, right? We don't think it's a problem for us. 
Idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our own mistaken estimations. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Gods at War, a great book. I would recommend it. Idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. These, do- these gods, now Israel had their Baals and Molechs and other gods, but we have our gods, um, uh, the God of food, the God of sex, the God of entertainment, the God of success, the God of money, the God of achievement, the God of romance, the God of family, the God of ourselves. These gods are at war for the throne of your heart, and much is at stake. Everything about me, everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become depends upon what God wins the war. Uh, understand, brothers and sisters, and anything that becomes the purpose and the driving force of our lives has become our God and is idolatry of some kind. Now, the Bible often uses the analogy of adultery to describe and illustrate idolatry. And I'm pretty confident that most of us would agree that adultery is not a good thing. Amen? Adultery is not a good thing. And the Bible many times says that when you and I fall into idolatry, it's like we're committing adultery against God. Now, imagine this week that you run into me at Bonefish Grill and I'm having a romantic dinner with someone other than Laurie. (laughs) I probably should have mentioned this illustration first, okay? And you walk up to me and you say, Steve, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm on a date. Uh, But what about Laurie? Hey, what about her? I mean, I love her and I've taken her out plenty of times. Okay? Question, how would you respond? And can you imagine Laurie greeting me at the door and saying, hey, babe, I'm just wondering, how did your date go tonight, right? (laughs) Newsflash, that would never happen. And you know what? If she didn't get angry, I I would be hurt. I I I would be offended. Understand, anything other than jealousy would mean that she didn't really care about me or or about our marriage relationship. But I know that she does care. Had a good example, you know, kind of make me feel good. You know, we're flying out of the DR and, you know, we're, we're three seats together. I'm in, in the middle. She's going to be in the aisle. And an unknown person's going to be in the window seat. And we saw that unknown person putting her luggage in, the overhead. And she wasn't dressed really, you know. And Laurie looks at me and says, you're sitting in the aisle seat. <laughs> and I go, I'd be terrified to sit in the middle seat, man. I, I don't be anywhere. I, I don't want the middle seat for nothing, right? For nothing. I want you to know that's, how, that's the way that God loves you. You see, the only person that God wants you to have a romantic dinner with at Bonefish Grill is him, right? No other gods before him. You know, he's jealous for you. Like that song we like to sing, he is jealous for me. You know, love's like a hurricane, I'm the tree, bending beneath the weight of his winds and mercy. And listen, it, it changes everything. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see people And everything in life takes on more significance when we know that God loves us that way, that God is jealous for us with an unfailing love. Again, Ruth's story takes place in an environment full of idolatry that God describes with these words. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, which as Justin said in his message last week about Daniel, is pretty much the environment that we live in today, right? Everybody does whatever they think is right in their own eyes. Okay, back to Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Of course there was a famine. God had removed his protection. It was not just a famine of a lack of food. There was a famine of a a lack of God, a lack of God's word, a, a lack of living out God's word. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, which means my God is king. His wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. Uh, they were Pathrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, if you look from the map, you can see that it, it was not a very far journey geographically, but it was a large move in other ways. You see, the Moabites were enemies of God's people. And they were descended from Moab, who was the son of an incestual relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter. And the Moabites had been oppressing God's people for years 
during the period of Judges. The bottom line, Elimelech leaving the promised land and taking his family to a pagan country was not the right move to make. Now understand, instead of trusting in God, he trusted in the food supply in Moab. Like we read in Psalm 118, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, Limelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So things are really looking bad for Naomi. She's a widow, a single mom, living in a foreign country. Um, next we read, verse 4, they married Moabite women, um, uh, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And here again, we see another mistake, right? This family made, marrying people who are not God's people. And just in case you're wondering, most of the time that doesn't work out. Sometimes missionary dating works. A lot of times missionary dating doesn't work, right? Well, I'll get married and hopefully someday they'll want to follow Jesus. It may or may not work. Now, I don't know if you know this. This is true. But when Oprah Winfrey was born, her parents intended to call her Orpah. But somehow the, the R and the P got switched and she became Oprah Winfrey. Now, I contacted Oprah Winfrey this week and she was very excited about this message today. So excited that she has put under everybody's seat in this room keys to a brand new 2016 Chevy Camaro. Just kidding. But some of you are going to look just in case, right? You can pretend you dropped your Bible, but maybe they're really there. That would be sweet. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malign and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, I'm sure that most of us have heard and maybe at times have lived out this expression, when it rains, it pours. I mean, it seems many times that just when we think that things couldn't possibly get any worse, guess what? They do. I mean, oftentimes our, our, our lives can seem like a bad country and Western song. Our wife leaves us, the barn burns down, the crops fail, and the dogs die, or something like that. It's like that Kenny Rogers song. You know, you picked a fine time to leave me Lucille with four hungry children and a crop in the fields, right? I've had some bad times. I lived through some sad times. But this time, your hurting won't heal. You picked a fine time to leave me. I, you know what I used to think it was? 400 children. You know, instead of hungry, I'll go like, dang, that's a lot of kids to leave, man. He's got, he's got us with 400 I mean, I, I, I was watching Andrew leave today. Sarah's out of town. Andrew left the parking lot to the van today, corralling his seven little ones, man, doing a good job. But it's like, wow, you're all by yourself. Okay. Now, in this passage, right, Naomi's going through a very difficult time, and many people refer to her as the Job of womanhood, and with good reason. I mean, her story begins with her leaving her hometown of Bethlehem, and I think as she leaves, she's saying to herself, well, you know, I... I've lost, I've lost everything. We're losing our home, our land. But, but I got my husband, and he's a good man, and he takes care of me. And I got my two boys, and, and they're young, and they're strong. And I got my God. I got my faith. As long as I have these, I, I, I'll be okay. I mean, she even says later on in the, in the book of Ruth that when she left Jerusalem to go to Moab, she left feeling full. And then to get to Moab, and her husband gets sick, and he doesn't get any better. He becomes weaker and weaker, and eventually her husband dies, and she's a single mom, a widow in Moab, this hostile country, trying to raise her two boys. And the two boys grow up, and they fall in love with two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they get married, and it seems like a great day, right? I mean, finally some good news for Naomi and for this family. Two weddings, but these two weddings are quickly followed by two funerals. And there's no time for grandkids, as Naomi, after losing her husband, she loses her two sons, and she's just experiencing incredible, incredible grief. A guy named Edgar Jackson writes this about grief. Uh, grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not, and that they never will be again. Now, some of you, you get it. You know loss, and you know disappointment. And some of you don't, but you will. You see, none of us are exempt. Jesus said, in this world you will ha have trouble. And he was telling the truth. If, if trouble's not here, I'm telling you, it's coming. 
Yes, Naomi experiences what would seem to be almost unbearable amount of loss, just one thing after another. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there with her two daughters-in-law. She left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And I really like that phrase right there. She left. It should pop up right now. She left the place where she had been living and sat on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Understand it, and you may want to write this down. There's always a row back from where you are to the place where God intends for you to be, right? There's always a road back from where you are to the place where God intends for you to be. And I don't know, but maybe that's why God brought you here this morning to tell you that you don't have to keep living where you are, that there is a road back to the place where God intends for you to be. Get it? Good. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she, then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm, I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, you may have heard that last part before, right? Maybe at a wedding, right? I mean, sometimes that scripture's read as a bride and a groom stand in front of each other and express their love and devotion. But if we really want to be true to the text and be accurate, what should happen in that wedding is is the bride should turn away from her groom and look at her mother-in-law, right? And say, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay, right? And I don't think that's going to happen, right? I don't think that's a tradition that's really going to catch on. I don't think so. But that's what's happening here, right? That would be weird if it happened. There's just this very real, deep relationship that's formed between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And the Bible says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And this is our first clue that something is about to happen, right? That God is doing something. Some kind of Romans 8.23 causing everything to work out together for the good. Things that we cannot see from eye level, right? Sometimes we don't know what God's doing, right? It's like looking at a plant, right? Looking at the sunflowers out there, right? It's like, where did they come from, right? I didn't see them like last week, and now they're like 10 feet tall, right? God is always up to something, now, now, what emotions do you think Naomi felt as she arrived back in her hometown and saw all those familiar sights? The place where her and Emelech met for the first time. You know, the streets that they walked down together. You know, the places that her two sons ran and played. What do you think she was feeling? When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant, because I ain't feeling that way, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I mean, do you, do you, can you see her face? Do you feel her emotions? She's angry. Who's she angry at? God. 
And let me give you a little secret, right? If you're angry at God, just be honest, right? Like if you're really ticked at him, don't, don't go say, God, you're awesome and wonderful, and I love you and I trust you. No, you can say, God, you know what? I'm really ticked off at you. I'm angry at you. Like, like where are you? How, how could you let this happen? You know, what's up with you, God, right? He knows what you're feeling, and it's great to be honest with him, right? And Naomi was mad because in her mind she felt that God didn't live up to his end of the deal. This was not the way her story was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. So she says, God, look what you've done to me. You make my life bitter. You brought me misfortune. God, it's your fault. You've afflicted me. You know, I wonder if some of that emotion sounds familiar. I mean, have you ever reached a point? Have you ever been at the place where it feels like what you hope for, what you dream for, like somehow that you thought God was going to deliver on something and give something, and it just didn't happen the way you thought it should happen? It didn't work out the way you thought it should? I mean, you passed this script up to God, and God, and God like changed it all? That's how she felt. Don't call me Naomi, call me Myra. So then we returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Act one is over, act two begins, and I call this one, as it turned out. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, as it turned out, and that's God doing his thing, right? As it turned out, right? And here's the deal, right? right? If, if, if something happens today, maybe a song we sing, maybe a scripture I read, something I say, something someone says before or after the service, as it turned out, you just happened to be here today. As it turned out, you just happened to meet that person in the hallway at just the right time, and they said just the right thing. As it turned out, she was working the field belonging to who? To Boaz. He was from the clan of Elimelech. I love it. As it turned out. Now turn to the person to your right and left. I know some of you don't like to do this sometimes. But, and and when, someone, when the other person doesn't turn, it doesn't work out real good, right? Okay? Turn to the person to your right and left. Get some stretching out and just say, as it turned out. <laughs> As it turned out. <laughs> All right, cool. And, and in other words, get ready, right? Because God's fixing to do and reveal and unveil his, eight, his Romans 8.28 skills on the lives of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And what I want to do now is summarize what happens in Acts Act two of the story, as it turned out. So Ruth goes in this field that belongs to Boaz, and she's gleaning. And what gleaning is, God, had, God loves poor people, right? And he cares about them. And in the law in Leviticus, God said, hey, when you harvest your fields, do not harvest the edges. And do not go back a second time to get what you missed. Leave that there for the poor people, you know? And what I love about it is God allowed them to go out and get it, Right? You know, provided for them, but also gave them some dignity, right? He didn't say, hey, gather this up and give to the poor people. He says, no, leave it there for them to go and gather up. And Boab notices her. He says, hey, who is she? And I, I tend to think that, that, that Ruth was, was, was good looking, right? And he finds out she's a Moabite who came back with Naomi. So Boaz, he goes over to her and he tells her, hey, I want you only to glean in my field because you'll be safe here. And then he tells his guys, hey, I don't want you to touch her. I don't want you anything. Do not lay a hand on her. And Ruth is like, okay, why are you being so kind to me? You know, like, like are you wanting something in return? And he goes, no, 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 no. Now, I heard about you. I heard about how faithful you were to your mother-in-law and that how you have come under the Lord's wing for refuge. And so Ruth heads out on the fields and Boaz tells his guys, hey, I want you to make it easy for Ruth. And could you kind of like just throw some stuff out that you picked already? You throw out some extra stuff for Ruth, you know? And she gets all this extra stuff. And, and when she comes home and Naomi sees it, right? She's blown away by how much Ruth brought back. And she asks Ruth, in whose field were you gleaning? 
as it turned out, Boaz. And right there, when Naomi hears that, her faith begins to be renewed. The Lord bless him, Ruth 2.20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. A kinsman redeemer was a close relative who would marry a widow and raise up children in the name of the one who had died. Now Ruth continues to work in the field until the harvest is over. And then when the harvest is over, Naomi begins to play the role of matchmaker, right? When the harvest is over, she tells Ruth, okay, take a bath. I'm not making any of this up, okay? Put on some perfume. Put a, put a nice dress on. And I want you to go to the threshing floor. Don't let Boaz know you're there until he's done eating. Timing is everything. When a guy's eating wayside fried chicken, right, it's not the time to interrupt him, right? And then I want you to find where he's sleeping. And, and then I want you, once he's asleep, I want you to take the blanket off his feet and uncover his feet, and I want you to lay down. That's kind of weird, right? You know, and, and, and basically that was like saying, hey, would you like to marry me? Actually, when Laura and I was dating, one morning I woke up and my feet were, no, kidding. <laughs> As my feet were uncovered, like, whoa. And she, okay, hey, she, she had just studied Ruth. I was kidding. Uh, you know, so, so, so Boaz wakes up at midnight. He accepts her proposal. He says, hey, there's some details I got to work out because there's a guy who's actually in line in front of me. And he says, I, stay here. I want you to be careful. I don't want anybody to see you leave because I want to protect your reputation. I like that. And I say to single guys or future single guys, you know, are you protecting the reputation of the person that you're dating? Here, here's a clue. If you're dating somebody, they're not your wife yet, right? All right? Okay, they're not your wife yet. They may, in fact, they may be someone else's wife. And I just want to challenge you, encourage you, protect their reputation like Boaz. Be a Boaz. Amen? The roof goes home, and Naomi asks her a very spiritual question. How did it go? <laughs> she says, it went great. And so Boaz meets the guy ahead of him, and, you know, he, he's wanting to marry Ruth, but he's got to sell the deal, right? So he goes to the guy, hey, you know, you're first in line, and there's this property, and you're able to redeem it. And the guy goes, that's great. I could use some more property. He goes, but, but you should know that there's two widows that come with the deal, and one of them's kind of old, and what's her name? What do people call her? Oh, bitter, bitter, right. Everybody says she's just a bitter old lady, right? And there's another widow, she's a Moabite, and I think she's kind of bitter too, you know, and if you get the field, you gotta, you gotta marry Ruth, and then you gotta bring them in your home. And the guys go, no, I don't think I wanna do it. You do it, go ahead and do it. And Boaz like, well, you know what? If it'll help you out, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it for you. Man, he, he set it up so well, uh, so well indeed. And uh, Boaz redeems the land, marries Ruth. They have a son named Obed, and they live happily ever after. Great story, powerful truths. I mean, a Romans eight twenty eight story to be sure. And now for some takeaways. And and here's the deal. I guarantee that at least one of these takeaways are for you, right? At least one, maybe more than one, but at least one of these really applies to you this morning. So I want to encourage you to lean in to these truths. Uh, first takeaway, your tragedy can lead to triumph. Your tragedy can lead to triumph. You know, you know as we read this story from the book of Ruth, here's the question. What, what's the story about? I mean, what, what's, what's it really about? And, and when, when we read it and, and at a surface level, we think, well, that's easy. The story, it's about loss. It's about a woman who just loses, loses her home, loses her land, loses her husband, loses her son. It's a story about loss. But, but here's the question I would ask. Does the story have to be about loss? Does it have to be about that? Yes, she loses a lot, incredible pain and loss, but does the story have to be about loss? Is that what the story has to be about? There's a guy named Gerald Sitzer, he was a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And back in 1995, he's in a minivan with his family, and a drunk driver hits them head on, and in an instant, he lost three generations. His mom died, 
His wife died. One of his daughters died. And he and his three other children, though injured, you know, survived. And, and uh, Gerard, he, he wrote a book about this journey. And, and, and the book is called A Grace Disguised, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. I love the title. I love, 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 love the book. Check out what he once said in an interview. Once said in, in an interview. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Are you going through a loss right now? The defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be, could be about our response to the loss. The event happened, you know, in 1995. He wrote the book in 1996, and God led me to that very book the summer of 1996, right after Judy, my first wife's physical body, at the age of 38, died from cancer as her soul went home to be with the Lord. And I got to tell you that that book, A Disguised Grace Growing Through Loss, and, and this book is what enabled me on the very next Sunday after she had died, on, enabled me on August the 4th, 1996, to stand in front of the church I was pastoring and to preach a message called Victim or Victor, Turning Your Trials into Triumphs. Listen, we don't get to decide what roles we play in the story of our lives, but, but we do get to decide how we play the roles that God hands us. And so we reach this point in our lives, we reach this point in our story where we ask, is this going to define me? Is this going to be what my life is about? Is my story going to be about loss? Is that it? Or could the story be about something different? I mean, could it? Could, 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 could your story be about grace? Could it be about redemption? Could, could, it, could it be about faith? Could it be about a sovereign king who causes everything to work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? And no, it, I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. You know, it, it wasn't easy for Ruth and Naomi you know, to rise above the pain of, of their circumstances and, and the not-so-happy chapters of their story. And the bottom line is this, church, if we just focus on what's happening right in front of us, right? Like Naomi, we say, hey, call me bitter. And don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because life is hard and I don't like it right now. But listen, here's what we know. That if there is one word to describe the story of Ruth, it's not bitter it's not loss, it's redemption. And understand, redemption begins. Our redemption begins with our own personal decision to trust in his goodness in the midst of the storm. Amen? That's where it begins. Jesus' half-brother wrote, right? It's familiar words. We know these words, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Your tragedy could be your triumph. Another takeaway is your character matters and is refined in the fire. Understand this story, we see how much character matters. Ruth was a woman of great character. Boaz saw it. Everyone in the town saw it and knew it. Boaz was a man of great character. Ruth experienced it. He cared about her poverty. He cared about her reputation. He was loved by her workers. He was a godly man, a man of character. And listen, it was the character of Ruth and Boaz that enabled God to unleash Romans 8.38, I mean Romans 8.28, the promise of 8.28 in their lives. You see, the truth is, if they were not people of character, the story would have played out in an entirely different way than it did. And I so want us to get this. It is our character. 
It, it is our integrity. It is our faithfulness. It is our purity. It is our character, our faithfulness, our integrity, and our purity that puts us in a place where God can unfold and unleash Romans 8.28 in our lives. It is our character, our integrity, our faithfulness, our purity that puts us in a place where God can do what he's so longing to do. Get it? And the converse is also true, right? Sometimes we're laying back like, God, what's the deal? What's the deal? I ain't seeing no Romans 8, 28 happening in my life. How's your character? How's your purity? How's your faithfulness? How's your integrity? You know, I mean, sometimes we tie God's hands by our lack of faith, our lack of integrity, our lack of purity. He wants you to do a good thing. God says, I really can't do that right now. I'd like to. Bottom line, character matters. Ruth and Naomi had it in spades and it was refined in the fire. Peter writes this. There's wonderful joy ahead. Where's the joy? It's ahead. Even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. By the way, these people were being like killed for their faith. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Gold is just pavement in heaven. And so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor. On the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world, your character matters. It's refined in the fire. You know, the, guy, the first guy in line, you know what his name is? I don't know. It doesn't tell us, right? He didn't have any character, right? He was more worried about his stuff and how, and how his stuff would be interfered with if he brought in the widow into his life. And listen, your character will set you apart in ways that matter. Your character will allow God to Work Romans 8.28 in you and, and, and through you. Krista Will, professor of missions at Ozark Christian College, writes this about character. I'm going to be the same person whether I'm holding a communion tray in my hand or a remote control. I'm going to be the same person whether I'm in a hotel room 500 miles from home or in the family room with my kids. I'm going to be the same person when I'm reading my Bible or browsing through a bookstore. I'm going to be the same person whether I'm break at work or I'm walking through the sanctuary of my church. For what matters is my integrity, my purity, and my faithfulness. Your character matters. It's refined in the fire. Your tragedy can be your triumph. Your sacrifice may be your salvation. You know, you know a lot of times when we make sacrifices for someone, we, we kind of think we put on a cape with a big S on it and say, hey, y'all can relax. I'm here to help you out. I'm going to rescue you. But listen, typically, our service to others is God's way of saving us. Here's the deal. Here's what I'm trying to say. It's, it's not in spite of our sacrifice. It's, it's not in spite of what we give up. It's because of what we give up. It's because of what we sacrifice that we have life. We read it just yesterday. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking to his guys about what it means to follow him. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will what? You're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, give up everything you are, all your hopes, wants, dreams, desires, if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will what? You'll save it. You know, every time I think, you know, God, you know, God, look what... You know, I'm giving up for you, right? Look what I'm sacrificing for you. When my heart is right, when, when my heart is in tune, I'm realizing that, that, that what I give up, what my sacrifice is my salvation, right? It is my salvation. You know, we had the opportunity, right, 12 of us from our church and a bunch of others to go to the, uh, to the DR. And this is us outside of this, this school in Katui that we got to paint. And like I said, more stories will come. I, I really don't, we don't have time today at least in the service. Well, we'll, we'll set out time to do that. But, 
you know, you can think about what you give up, right? Well, we gave up money. People gave up time. Some people gave up vacation time. We gave up the ability to flush toilet paper, right? You know, some of us right here, I see Jake back there, but right, we couldn't wait to get home to flush toilet paper in the toilet, right? Because you, you can't do that over there. And if you do, then your toilet's clogged and it backs up into the tub, which is really nasty, let me tell you, because I was dodging in the tub taking a shower as the toilet backed up, right? But you think of all the stuff, you think that maybe you're giving up but you realize you're giving up nothing compared to what you're gaining. You gain so much. When you look in people's eyes, when you look in kids' eyes, and you look in the eyes of the broken, you're like, I didn't give nothing up. I mean, I made a small sacrifice, and I got a massive, massive, massive blessing. See, it's your, your sacrifice may be your salvation. Your happy ending are never just for you. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Talk about a happy ending. But listen, the happy ending wasn't just for Ruth, was it? Actually, it was for you and for me. It was for the whole world. Because if you jump into Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and you read the family tree of Jesus, you read, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. See, your happy endings, your blessings are never just for you. You see, God blesses us. He gives us happy endings so that we can bless the lives of other people. And here's the deal. If, if your happy endings, if the blessings God has poured on you do not result in other people being blessed, that should cause you pause. If how God has blessed you, people who live in the United States of America, you know, it, 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 we don't need to feel guilty about our wealth. It's a gift to be shared, right? Don't beat yourself up because you have nice things. That's okay. But has your blessings result in other being blessing, blessed? Are there people that have food? I do really believe that really most of us you know, should ha- at least have a compassion child or for some other organization, right? I mean, we all can do 25, 30 bucks a month, right? We all could do that, right? I mean, that, that should be a given, right? That should be like a minimum, right? You know, I mean, you know, we, we, if we can with 30 bucks, I think we can, right? We bring out two cans once a month. I mean, let, let's, uh, let's, I want, let's make Lou have to make two trips, right? You know, say, I, gotta, I, I need to borrow a truck because I don't got enough, I, I, I don't have enough thing to get all the stuff there, right? Does that make sense? And finally, your story should be one of redemption. A redeemer is one who has the right, the privilege, and responsibility to pay the price to set things right. Bottom line, a redeemer redeems. Let me tell you, Boaz's story was most definitely one of redemption. His story began in redemption, became one of redemption. You know, I don't know if you know who his mom was. His mom was a prostitute who lived in a city called Jericho, and her name was Rahab. That was Boaz's mom. And so Boaz knew what it was to be on the outside, right? Uh, to be on the outside looking in. But he also knew what, what it was like to, he knew the joy and peace and the freedom of being redeemed. Understand, if you're a Jesus follower, your story is to be one of redemption. Our story is to be one of redemption, of, of, of healing what is broken. 
of setting free what is captive, of bringing light to the darkness, hope to the helpless, food to the hungry, peace to those in conflict, purpose to those who feel like they have nothing to live for, love to the unlovely, truth to those who are bound up in lies, and Christ to those who need Him. Christ redeemed us so we can redeem the world. And does our world need rescue and redemption? Oh my goodness. Here's just an image, right? Wow. It's a broken world. People shooting each other, hating each other, killing each other because of the color of somebody's skin. It's nuts, right? I mean, police officers, you know, five of them killed, trying to, who are there to help people. Yeah, sometimes they do bad things, but there's more, there's more good police officers than bad police officers, right? I mean, nobody should be treated unfairly, but wow, what a broken world, right? What a dark world, you know? It needs redemption. I love what my daughter-in-law posted on her Facebook, Hannah Malone. Here's what she posted the other day. After the events of the last couple days and Waking up to more violence this morning, I felt this deep, guttural urge to shout from the rooftops, what the hell's going on? But no, I'll not be shaken by chaos. Today I'm stepping outside more motivated than ever to be a force of love and peace in the world. I'm going to look humans in the eye and see them. I'm going to be kind because ultimately, folks, change starts with each of us. Kindling that tiny spark in our hearts that can ignite a firestorm of love and peace and change. Don't spend today fretting over evil men. Spend today as a warrior of peace, wielding weapons of righteousness and love. And she goes, roar at the end of it. Man, I love it. I love it. Our stories be one of redemption. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? You know, and, and, and I'm here to say, I, I think for the most part, we've lost our flavor in America, the church as a whole. There's basically 321 million people in America, right? And, and, and 177 million are over 14 years of age and claim to be Christians, you know? And, and, and what I have right here is, unwrapping here, is about four ounces a McDonald's fries that'll be here when the world ends, right? And they're going nowhere, McDonald's fries. About four ounces, right? A McDonald's French fries. Bought them last night. And, and, and that's a little over half, right? Over half the people in our country, over 14, and claim to know Christ. And, and I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, do you think if you put, and this is two ounces, four ounces of fries, two ounces of salt. Do you think if you put this much salt on your French fries, you would notice the salt? What do you think? It's still going. Anybody want some fries? It's still going. It's still going. I I think God is saying to us in this room today, let's make our salt salty again. How? What do we do? (laughs) It's right there. Pray for one. It's right there. And it's not going away. We pray for one. And you realize if the 177 million people over 14 who claim Christ would pray for one, we're done. It's changed. Our country has changed. That's how we change it. We don't have to pick it. We don't have to protest. It's not going to be changed. What a crazy election, right? It's going to be not. It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office, who's flying in Air Force One. That's not going to change our country. We change it one life at a time. We redeem one life at a time. Are you praying for one? You know, Sonia, you know, share with me this morning, it's so cool, you know, that, that she's leaving today to go up to Northern Virginia to meet with her one. And what gave her the opportunity to sh- help a lot with her one was, you know, you're, a while back, Sonia wanted me recommend a book about someone who undergone loss. I go, I know the book she needs. It's called The Sky's Grace Growing Through Loss. And the lady's been reading this book. And it's impacted her life. And so pray for Sonia as she meets with her one that, that who knows what God does today. 
You, you never know how God's going to use you. Church, pray for one. Don't stop praying for one. God, give me one person to share your love with today. Let's live our lives with our hearts and our eyes and our pocketbooks wide open, looking for people that we can love. Let's stop beating up with the world, you know, running from the world. Let's go out and redeem the world. Amen? That's what he's called us to. And every week at Maple Grove, you know, after the word and, and, and worship, we, we, we respond, right? Like, hey, so what? Right? And, and I just want to encourage you guys to reflect and, you know, to pray for yourself, to pray to be salty. And if you have questions about your faith and you want to talk to me, I'll be hanging up here. We can talk and pray, you know. And, and, and uh, we also take time to remember the ultimate kinsman redeemer, uh, this close relative of ours, Christ who gave his life for us, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. And every week what we do as a church, if you're here visiting, if you're here for the first time, is during this time we all get up and at various stations we have communion. And, and you just go over there, you grab it, you grab a cup, and there's a cracker and the juice right there. And you just take some time to remember you know, uh, our redemption and what make that redemption possible. And, and, and we also respond because we also have uh, our offering boxes are over there. You know, and, and, and God has blessed us as a people individually, and we want to use our resources, right, as a church to bless our world, to bless our community. And so it's an opportunity for you to give as well. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to pray. And then once I'm done praying, it's time to respond. And then we'll come back and close with the song. God, we love you. And Jesus, thank you for being that friend that not only stuck closer than a brother, but God... God, Jesus, you died on the cross for us, and we remember that sacrifice. We remember that redemption. And Jesus, you, thank you that you trust us enough to be the salt of this earth. And, and God, Jesus, may, maybe our salt isn't as salt as it should be, God, and I pray that we make it salty again. And Father, I pray for those whose life is hard right now, that they would take that tragedy and, and turn it into triumph. And God, for those of, of us in this room who who think that character doesn't matter, that their integrity and faithfulness and purity doesn't matter. I pray they recommit those things to you, God. And God, us who've been blessed, God, I pray that we will bless others with the things you've given to us. And God, may we realize that the things that we give up and sacrifice are our salvation. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the sacrifice. And help us to pray for one. And be with Sonia today. And we look forward to hearing what happens as she's faithful to the call to make disciples and share the good news about you. In Jesus' name, amen.